Hello, and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Shape the System. Today joined by Dan McKenna. How are you, Dan? Good, good. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, We're going to be talking about... Um, I think I'm probably going to put the wrong term on this. It's not really social. Is affordable housing probably the right? No. I, Let's put us in the zone here. Yeah, so we're, a, I guess, a not-for-profit housing developer essentially. So yes. we work with community housing providers who provide affordable housing. We allocate percentages of our buildings to affordable housing. But I think using us as, you know, capital A affordable housing isn't quite right. right we have okay. a broad range of different, different offerings. Brilliant. Okay, well, let, and we'll, we'll jump into your offerings in a little bit. I, w- I want to get to mm-hmm. that. I want to understand, though, the space in which you're operating generally in terms of, like, how does that work today and what's fundamentally wrong with that space in Australia or even more broadly? Yeah, so we, um, I'm trained as an architect and we're born out of a group of pretty frustrated architects who had been employed by, I guess you would say, kind of uninspired property developers for the last <laughs> 10 to 15 years who were putting together, you know, five, six-storey, 10-storey apartment buildings across our cities. And I think with the climate crisis we're right in the middle of at the moment, people really understand that density is important and density is what we need to be doing. But historically, as Australians, we don't really have a culture of density done well. So enter a group of architects who really just wanted to pick and pick the eyes out of great European models that have been happening for hundreds of years because they've had to and start to, you know, implement that into our cities in Australia. So that's kind of the short of where we where we started. Got it. So so before we get to the Nightingale project specifically, but this mm-hmm. which is a one of the kind of ways mm. this is sort of going out, there is actually the the the, the, the kind of the genesis of this is actually we need to have higher density in Australian cities, if we're going to do our part in terms yep. of resource of you know, use of resources, and not just the yep. use of the resources and the materials, right, but also like the Living efficiency of these buildings and, yeah. going forward, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, definitely. And so, just let's, let's try and quantify this problem because I think, like, I, I've done some work with a company called eTool that does life cycle analysis on yep. on buildings and the materials in buildings, and yep. so I have some understanding of this being part of it. What's the footprint of re, you know residential construction, this type of thing in climate generally like what what's what are we talking oh, about here? it's oh, off the top like it's it's crazy big i believe that the construction industry is like the number one to n- number two in terms of carbon emissions globally right. so and that's just the building of the buildings not not yeah, even living in cities no. and having to drive huge distances so exactly so there's all these knock-on effects that architects absolutely get because that is you know how we've been trained and how we've been trained to think and so right. I think the frustration was that further and, uh, you know, the architect has kind of gotten further and further away from being in the position to be able to make those decisions and decide how the city should be planned. Right. And so this was, you know, our solution is kind of one attempt to take back control a little bit and do density well because there's just such a knock-on effect. 
Right. And, and let's just drill in on that for a second. So mm-hmm. um, you talked about the European model or some examples in Europe and, and you just used the words doing density well. Like, yeah. Well, like, like bring, bring, give me a bit more colour on that. I think, look, European countries, Scandinavian countries, even parts of the US have been forced through population to have to deal with density. And so people living on top of people living on top of people isn't, isn't a bad thing. Right. Whereas... We're a very young country and a kind of naive country in so many ways and we've had so much space for such right. a long time that we've right. never, ever had to really engage with this properly. Even It's really only our generation now that is actually right. starting to understand the implications of it. So whereas 30, 40 years ago, the, the, you know, the, the goal was to get out of the city and to right. get your Probably own block of land. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that was the great Australian dream. So... <laughs> It's now only that we're seeing the effects of if everybody wants that and that is what we're all striving for, that things are going to fall apart and things are falling apart. So, right, right. And then so just coming back to what good looks like, if you take the Scandinavian mm-hmm. model, I don't know what that is, but using that as a baseline, like what, what, what are the hallmarks of good medium density or high density in this context? I think design plays a big part. Thermal performance is not something that's beautiful and gets on the front page of magazines, but, you know, we build really poorly here in Australia. We have some of the coldest and hottest houses in the extremities of our season. So thermal performance, insulation, windows, acoustic performance, things like that, private open space. Obviously, you know, I live in an apartment. I live in our first building that we've done and Sure. We have we don't have a backyard, but we have a shared rooftop, and right. and the community's you know own, there's only twenty apartments in this building, and it's small enough that we know everyone, and we're comfortable hanging out on the rooftop, and and just kind of little things like that, activating the ground floor. We don't have a we don't have car parks in this building, so right. we don't have a a garage grill you know facing our street. So instead of that, we have a little cafe, a little park by that front. So just little bits and pieces that are harder to do financially and commercially. Right. And, right. and so, so there, you know, we, we pull out a lot of stuff that we think isn't necessary materially and, and things like cars and air conditioners and things like that. Because if you design the building right, you don't actually need air conditioners in our climate. Right. So yeah, lots and lots of little pieces about, you know, how it's worked overseas historically that we, we think people are pretty ready for. And when we started doing this, there was a lot of hesitation from, sadly, like, you know, real estate agents and, and people who are at the forefront of, of the market essentially saying, oh, you know, no, no, people won't want this, people won't want that. And right, then right. we've just seen that kind of this explosion of interest of, yeah, we've got a massive supply issue. We don't have a demand issue. We just have thousands and thousands of people signing up our website who yeah. are really, really keen on what we do. So, And I think yeah. part of that, like, and having, I've only looked at the Nightingale housing project specifically, but it, if that ethos is coming from a from a larger place, I, my guess is there's a whole bunch of people who aren't looking for a quarter acre block and don't yeah. want to be in a soulless box in the CBD. Or yeah, in, and there's nothing in between. Case, there's nothing in between, right? So there's a yeah. whole bunch of people who are like, I do want to be part of a community. I don't need to own my own block of land. I don't want to live in the country but I don't want to just go into my apartment from my garage in my lift and never see anyone. And yeah. I also hate that existence as well. And yeah. So is, is it, it, there's obviously a core set of people. Is there anything that kind of, 
like if you had to describe that group of people that defines and unifies that group of people like what's the what's the shared thread outside of the desire to have that kind of living do you think yeah like a lot of the people that we've you know we started as group of architects so we talked to a lot of architects and so we had a lot of graduate architects and that was you know 2015 2016 and now we've kind of bridged past that into the wider community and mm. the people that come to us are particularly interested in sustainability so environmental sustainability i think yeah year on year on year everybody's getting way more aware and way more educated on how they live and how that impacts the planet so the way we design our buildings ticks a lot of boxes for people so people want to live as sustainably as they possibly can and then the other one is is community as well people absolutely get it and especially the last 18 months that we're seeing that you know we're all stuck in our homes and (laughs) can't go into offices and can't interact with people i think that yeah, community and social connection. And it's not it's not a um you know, it's not a kind of intimidating level of Kumbaya, social connection. Of, yeah, like yeah. And I think every time you see each other in the hallway cooking lentil that, together thing. Yeah, that's I think that's what we have struggled in terms of our the perception of Nightingale. Sometimes people go, Whoa, whoa, you know, ease up guys, that sounds yeah. a little bit too much. But right. It's actually just designing the building in such a way that facilitates, you know, casual interactions with people, casual interactions with your neighbours to sort of slowly grow connections over time. And then when you do need to reach out or need support or vice versa, that you know your neighbours are there. Right. And part of that is is keeping community sizes as low as we possibly can. So that there's the not just... the 20 people you were talking about? The 20 well, yeah, yeah. Our building's got 20 front doors, 20 apartments in it. So... Right. There's, you know, you know everyone in the building. You know, you know people's parents and people's families, and there's right. just kind of this good, I guess, number before you start to breach that into. I don't know who that guy is. Oh, right. should I have opened the door for him? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the people that we talk to, big into sustainability, big into community, and then also cost and affordability. We talk to a lot of first home buyers because. You know, that dream of a quarter acre block is becoming less and less appetizing and less and less realistic for right. so many people of our generation. I think From it's a pure it's, cost perspective, you mean? Yeah, well yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's like trying to purchase anything on one wage right. is very, very difficult. And then two wages is very, very difficult. So we've got different financial mechanisms and also in the way we design the buildings well, or all of our buildings, to keep things as financially and economically as efficient as we possibly can to give people that opportunity to get in and then have secure housing, have their own place. And then if it's two, four, five, ten years, however long they last there. So, yeah, they're they're the three three biggest things. And, like, in looking at the Nightingale one, which we will get onto in a little bit specifically, and this might be me projecting a little bit, but... (laughs) It's a beautiful building, right? And (laughs) obviously that's everyone wants a beautiful place to live, so it might be a moot point. But so often you see these, you know, if we talk about the faceless, soulless, you know, 200-story things, these things aren't beautiful in my – and maybe that's subjective, but um, does that – is it is that part of the kind of the ethos of a lot of what people want is that they are? They are architects or they're two steps removed and want – beautifully think design things how does that play into that yeah yeah definitely we like architecture is a big part of what we do and design is a big part of what we do and simplicity as well i think you know i worked as an architect on nightingale one on this building that i live in and this is pre nightingale housing being a thing and nightingale was just an idea and it was one building and and it was 
you know, at that time, and this is typical of a lot of architects, generally it's, you, you know, your clients are the top 3% of the community of people who you have that budget to be able to design every single corner and have this right. beautiful right. thing that has all the bells and whistles. And I think, you know, it's a little bit frustrating when there's so much inequality and there's so many other things happening in the world, but that is where architects have sort of landed over decade after decade of, of change. So, yeah, I think all of the architects that we work with in all of our buildings absolutely love the Nightingale Project and the Nightingale Brief mm. because it is, it's just about restrained simplicity and, and beauty as well and, mm-hmm. and robust, honest materials that, that really age well over time as opposed to kind of plasterboard boxes that, yeah, like things yeah. that you can tell three years after you've moved in that it's time to move out sort of thing. <laughs> Being very diplomatic. Um, yeah, yeah. I've lived in many of these places. <laughs> I feel like I nearly bought one of those places when I first moved to Sydney, actually. Yeah, that, that that's super interesting. And you, you made a point, I think, just before we jumped on, actually, around kind of, and I, you actually reaffirmed it, putting, putting architects back in the centre of this thing and, and then yeah. kind of cross-pollinating that with this idea that a very small number of people now get the opportunity to use an architect to live in, an, in a, a space that's beautifully designed and well designed and yeah and and what's what's coming full circle there do you think is it that that there's an appetite now for developers to say you can't just turn out this rubbish anymore you've got to get your stuff's got to get better the market is becoming yeah. more empowered for the consumer or the architects are going i don't want to be part of this rubbish anymore like what's happening i think it's both i think it's absolutely both that you know we started however many years ago and now we've seen in our little circle that we operate in in melbourne and, and a little bit wider than that the property developers getting, you know, getting better and, and right. realising that the market actually wants what we're trying to push and they care about sustainability and they care about design, they care about longevity and it's not just about a beautiful image, you know, in a marketing pack that yeah. that gets people in. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, <laughs> they always look amazing, don't they? Yeah, and it's it's <laughs> if you get anything that's half as good as that, you'd be lucky. So <laughs> I think, yeah, there's definitely an appetite from it's it's all market driven. So right. we talk to thousands of people, and only a small percentage of them will get into Nanaga homes because we haven't done a hell of a lot, and we are doing we're getting bigger and we're scaling. But there's still this absolute overflow of people who miss out. So those right. people go elsewhere and go well. I care That's about sustainability. I like, yeah, yeah, I want to live yeah. here for 10 years minimum. I want to stay here for the rest of my life sort of thing. So they know the questions to ask and then architects, designers, builders have that opportunity to make something great. Right. I think the where we, you know, try and dig our heels in a little bit is to say that that shouldn't be, that shouldn't cost a premium. You right. shouldn't have to pay above and beyond for sustainability or quality. Yeah. It shouldn't just be for those top, who can afford it. I guess that's where I was going to go with that was that if you create a set of market conditions where developers work out, wow, you can can add all these bells and whistles like nice design and sustainability and durability and people will Mm. pay more for that, like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But it would be great if that was the norm rather than seeing it as a way to upsell the McFry kind of option with it. And so it's good that it's dragging the market forward in a way, but a lot of what, you're doing specifically with Nightingale is actually about going back the other way and saying this stuff is, should be expected at every Built level in. of the market, right? Yes, agreed, absolutely. And that's mm-hmm. why we're, we've shifted to a not-for-profit so we can sort of, again, take another step and say, well, 
there is no incentive for profit in our model. We're doing all of these things and we're putting in 20% community housing and all these little layers that traditional developers would go, oh, well, you know, that's going to make it 5% more expensive. That's going to make it 5% more expensive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 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 So that, that's what we're trying to prove. And, you know, each year everybody gets better and the standard goes up and we want to really challenge ourselves to continue to push out the front because we know that, you know, we're a small, we're growing, we're a small team, but we want to, I guess, advocate for this space and, and push others to, to get there as well. Yeah, to challenge themselves on it. And so, like, just let's just get to, to Nightingale specifically. So yeah. the way Nightingale's set up is that it is that is a particular project that's out of this old, this ethos, but it sounds like you're going to replicate the Nightingale project and you've done one and you're obviously doing two at the moment, I think. Is that right? No, we've done heaps. We, so I say heaps and that number is about 15 probably. Okay. All so under we're, this not-profit housing model? So, yeah, so it's a, I guess our... Evolution is a is a long story in itself, but we, Nanigo One, the building I'm in at the moment, right. was one building, the first building led by Breed Architecture, where I used to work. Yeah, and then off the back of that, we set up a licensing model to say that you know you can do a Nanigo, you can do a Nanigo, everyone can do it, and it's just access access. <laughs> For a free um, kind of moment, throwing yeah, exactly, out exactly. <laughs> you get one, you get one, <laughs> and so that was when Nanigo Housing was formed, and right. so I went, I left Breathe Architecture and I started working Nanigo Housing, and that was right. 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. and so the idea was we would license as many architects across the country as we possibly could to empower them with the IP that we had developed to go and take this model and replicate it in Sydney and Brisbane and Perth and other parts of the city, uh, other yep. parts of the country. Yep. That we issued about 35 licenses yeah, right. and out of that, we only had three built projects. So okay. it was actually really, really difficult for yeah. architects who are trained as amazing architects to go and raise money and to purchase sites and run feasibilities and engage right. with builders and right. We're asking architects to be developers, essentially. Right, right. And so off the back of that, we've shifted again and we've sort of closed off the licensing model and started to take more control in within Nightingale Housing. So we employ development managers and we employ project managers and finance managers and comms people and community engagement. Mm-hmm. And we also engage architects to right. be architects and right. to do what they do. So we get we raise funding, we go and purchase the sites. And then yeah, through that process we've probably got yeah, we've probably got about fifteen projects underway. Some of them very close to construction, completion, some in planning and some kind of in early stages of design. So Okay. Um yeah, it, it's grown a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, 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 the mechanism here though is that there is a, a housing a, a project that that basically considers has a bunch of the IP that you've already sort of learned about how do you design these things well with, you know, sustainability yeah. and durability and thermal performance. It's a new word yeah. I've learned today. I was <laughs> thinking of like kind of Bond's underwear thermal performance, but clearly it's the problem with being in the Blue Mountains. Everything's about temperature now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so you take this model and that, that vertically integrated model, but from the kind of, I'm going to call it the customer's perspective, you mm-hmm. can say you've got 20 apartments in there. Yeah. You're essentially building them and marketing them and selling them at, as a non-profit. Yeah. Does that make all of them like insignificantly more affordable or is there some that are less affordable and some that are more affordable so that there is actually affordable housing and, the, and they're all cheaper than what the developer would normally charge? How does it look from the purchase yes. perspective is my question. Yes. No, you've absolutely nailed it because I, I have just been going through this. I do all the pricing for all the apartments. Right. So at... 
as a whole building, yes, right. it is cheaper than market. Got it. In saying that, you can go and find something cheaper. Absolutely can. But it's going to be an absolutely different level of quality. Right. It's going to be single glazed, you know, your typical yeah, stuff that, yeah, that we've all kind of seen. Right. And so, yes, that is cheaper. But in terms of value for money, like the, you know, the windows and doors that we put into these these apartments, the the floors, the joinery, everything is of a really, really high standard and built to last. Mm-hmm. But because we don't have a profit motive, that that flows through to the feasibility, that flows through to the ticket price of the apartment itself. And then we also do allocate 20% of each building to community housing providers and then they run through... The managed, provide, for managed service or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And so that also has implications on the entire project feasibility because, mm. and then, you know, that remaining 80%, obviously there's going to be some that are cheaper than average and some that are higher than average. So, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of long winded answer to say yes because we are <laughs> because we don't have that You've got all the time in the world here by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, without that with you know, without that big fat chunk of profit at the bottom of our feasibility, it it enables us to do things totally differently and think about things totally differently. Right. And you sort of touched on this before, right? Like if you if you're not trying to necessarily offload the thing and use the capital to buy the next thing and the people are coming in with a view to live in there for ten or fifteen years. Um, and even potentially sell it without a gain attached to it, which we'll talk about in a sec, then, like, how do you make decisions, right? You make, from a developer perspective or, you know, designer and architect perspective, you make totally different decisions. Definitely, definitely. And that's why we, and I'm a resident as well, and, and, you know, a handful of people that work for us are residents. So really, it's we make these decisions through the residence lens. Yeah, right. And in in a practical sense, like you're actually... Like yeah. the people who are going to buy it are part of the decision-making process? Uh, yes, yes and no. I think yeah. early days we started and um, in our first couple of buildings, that was a big part of it. It was deliberative design. It was, you know, we, we ballot, we get the 35, 40 people in the community together and then we'll have workshops and things like that. But I right. think it's a really hard way to design a building and it's it's actually not. That's not true. It's a really hard way to design an affordable Right. efficient financially driven building i think you could absolutely do that and we could all sit around and just add cost and cost and cost and cost and cost and then it right. would be something very very different which is not what we're trying to do so right. we engage with residents we you know we collaborate and we bring the community on board really really early and keep them involved but in terms of you picking what tap you want and you picking what floor you want that yeah all of a sudden you lose all cost control control yeah, yeah. when you go down that path yeah yeah absolutely i mean i, th- I think the most the most efficient form of government's benevolent dictatorship yes <laughs> yes i mean and to be fair as well i think you, you talk right up front about the ethos and the values and a lot of the people i would imagine who are buying in are buying for these ethos and values they kind of need yeah. to, to let you do your job to create yeah. an amazingly beautiful durable lovely absolutely space. so yeah you know, and there's a lot of trust yeah yeah and people have definitely grown to trust us over time and just say cool you guys have got this i know you work with the best architects the best builders let me know when yeah. it's done and then right, right. you know and we'll I'll move in happily move in yeah and go straight to the rooftop and hang out <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> and we'll be there because <laughs> yeah. i live here too but the, the, yeah. just talk me through this the uh, one, one part of it i was reading on on the nightingale site talked about this idea that when someone buys a place they can't then pass it on for profit 
like talk me through just some mechanics of that i'm just curious yeah it was a great idea that we had so many so many years ago and now we've you know we've had to jump through so many different legal iterations to actually see this play out but the idea being that if we've we've built you an apartment and its market value is eight hundred thousand dollars but we're selling it to you for seven hundred thousand or six hundred and fifty right then you can't go then you know the the week after you move into a real estate agent and go i'm selling my place it's worth 800 i'm getting 800 and then just capture that 150 so we've put a a retail restriction deed on all the contracts of sale so it links the it caps the maximum resale value you, you know the value you can resell it for and it importantly links your price to the increase in housing in that suburb over the period of time. So right. if housing has gone up by 10%, you can sell your place at 10%. If it's gone up by 30%, you can sell your place. What you bought it times 30%. Right. right. Importantly, we link it to housing and not to apartments because right. the way we design these buildings are like homes right. and we think about them like homes. And it's very, very different, and that's why you don't see much fluctuation or increase through in apartment prices throughout cities because it's it's something very different. Right. So that's kind of the high level of how the resale restrictions work. We've only just started to see them roll over and people start to move through different stages of life and resell their apartments. Importantly, because we have such a very, very strong following and a strong database, we don't need real estate agents to do this. We just get the person to take some photos yeah. on an iPhone if they want, and then we put them on our website and send an email out, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later. Someone... Yeah, yeah. And the price is not really up for debate, so that makes it a lot easier too. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, <laughs> I guess it's a tool to try and embed some of that affordability that the person's got in, you know, round one for right. the life of the apartment. I think mm. it's it's a blunt tool. It's not a perfect tool. But what it does do is it gets the right people in the door day one because if yeah. you're coming in thinking, oh, awesome, these things are crazy good and yeah. I'm going to get a bargain and then I'm going to make some serious patchy. Yeah, yeah that, it's really hard to build a community with that mm-hmm. because people are there for different reasons. And so it just gets the right people in the door on day one and then um, everyone's kind of thinking about this for a 5, 10, 15-year proposition, however long yeah. it is. I, I mean, I think I was thinking as much as anything, it's a selection tool rather as versus just a how do we yeah. pass the value on. Of course, yes, you should yeah. do that, but you, it, I think, from a community building perspective, <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I just um, it was like uh, a lot of the people we interview on on the podcast are, are working in some kind of impact. Well, they're all working in impact essentially. That's the whole point of the show. But um, a good chunk of them go down the kind of social venture route and fair number of them stay in the non-profit. Like, uh, help me understand why you landed in non-profit versus social venture and, like, how that decision kind of arrived. We initially went for full non-for-profit, full DGR status way back when we initially started. Right. And I wasn't involved in the process, but a bunch of lawyers said, oh, no, you guys can't do that. So we landed <laughs> with um, <laughs> social enterprise. Yeah, okay. lawyers are good at saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we've been a social enterprise for the last couple of years. As, and as we've scaled, we've never, ever been for profit. We've never taken profit. This hasn't right. been how our organization has been structured, how our business is structured. So the shift to a not-for-profit was an incredibly logical one for us, but also it helped us, I guess, validate who we are within the wider community as we gained 
more attention and more publicity and more media for people to go, oh, okay, I understand what this is. Because when people look at us and go, oh, you know, cool, someone's make, someone has to be making a lot of money somewhere along the line. Someone's right. making cash. But when you get in under the hood, there's no one making a lot of cash, I think. And so the, the, the not-for-profit status is just, I guess, validation of that, that right. there's no way that Nanagao can be monetized and that's not what we're here for. We're here for our mission. Interesting. So, so let me just make sure I understand that. So initially when you set up way back when, 2014, whatever it was, then mm-hmm. you were set up as a social enterprise but essentially yes. a normal company and we're just yep. going to choose not to make profits. Yes. Um, but coming back full circle, you're like, well, if we deign, yes. you know, call ourselves a non-profit and we actually become one, then people will believe us. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we'll exactly. keep doing what we were doing anyway. But at least we're not very good at making money. So yeah, let's just make it official. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've been in startup for twenty years and make a joke that you know, most startups are nonprofits as well. Yeah, they just don't know. It. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. That's 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 really interesting. I mean, I think um, a lot of the time, you know, you don't realize kind of the impact that one small thing will have on the overall messaging. I think in in finance you know, where I've been doing a bit of work, people equate time and effort. And so if you say something's going to take 20 minutes, then they think, well, this is only 20 minutes worth of effort. Even if there's a lot of other things that have to happen downstream mm. of that, that yeah. you can you can equate those two things. And by enabling something to happen faster, they their read of that is this will be easier for me, even though yeah. it could, something that takes 20 minutes can actually be incredibly hard for those 20 yeah. minutes, even though it only yeah. takes 20 minutes when you do it. And so just interesting that 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 that, people would come and look at non-profit and go, okay, cool, I have a far greater degree of trust that this organisation is actually operating as a non-profit and therefore they aren't, you know, secretly hiving, siving, putting funds yeah. out somewhere else. Yeah. Just on, on the, because, I mean, you know, all puns aside, it absolutely takes a village to, to bring a development to market. Yeah. Uh, and, if, look, if you can go to, go to your site and there's a bunch of partners listed, I'm curious as to the relationship that you have with those partners and how that might look like or different from how those partnerships might look or vendor relationships might look in an ordinary property development kind of context? Yeah, I think a lot of our partners really connect with what we're doing in terms of sustainability. I think in the construction industry, everybody, you know, worth their salt understands what the impact that we're all having and manufacturing and big companies. So we're partners with big companies like Fisher Paykel and yeah. PPG Tallman's. And so they see us as industry leaders and really, really pushing how to do sustainability within architecture, within construction to the absolute best. So mm-hmm. that's where the partnership works really well. Um, they love what we're doing and they really want to support what we're doing. And so with that partnership, every one of our kitchens has, you know, the best induction cooktops and we pay a hell of a lot less than if we just went down to Harvey Norman and just bought whatever right. to put into our building. So it means that that flows through because we're enough profit, it flows through to the resident who pays X for their kitchen, but they're actually getting the 12 speed mm. oven or the 12 function oven rather than the seven function oven. Interesting. So, yeah, there's a longer warranty as well, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it, you know, you could times that by a thousand across one specific building of all these little bits and pieces. And then yeah. as we go again and again and again, we just kind of sit down and reassess, especially with our partners and architects and collaborators and go, okay, cool, where can we get better? Where can we get better? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the challenge is we always want to be better than our last project, but more doesn't necessarily equal better. I think. 
simplicity and and pairing things back is probably our next challenge to go okay cool how do we how do we make this more efficient simpler neater yeah more affordable or yeah and and so our partners have a big role to play in that yeah that's interesting i I, i'd sort of imagined that they would be like yeah we're super keen to supply you with the range hood but here's the process Mm -hmm. and you'd be like yeah that's not that's not really going to help us as much as you working out how to be on board with the mission and part of that is cost obviously part of it might be yeah you know co-designing these products or understanding how these products will actually work and and helping to understand what it is that we should be using in the context that we're using yeah um, super, super interesting kind of model on that and I, I can see that in the in the kind of product provider sense but in the service provider sense does it play out slightly differently like the person who's providing their time rather than the physical object yes yes i think we yeah we work like yeah nightingale projects are hard i think we need to uh, all agree that we are absolutely not business as usual and so all of our collaborators and all of our sub consultants who work in our buildings are absolutely up for the journey and up for the fight and want to have some impact and that said for all the people that work at nightingale as well yeah we definitely don't do your kind of off-the-shelf projects and so yeah with that it's an investment of time it's an investment of energy but with that, we get the most incredibly passionate and smart and, yeah, amazing people coming through our projects that take us to another level. Right. So, yeah, I think, yeah, the people we work with, the partners we work with, everybody kind of really, really wants to be, you know, pulling in the same direction, which is, right, yeah, right, it's, right. It's, it's it's energising. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds amazing. And you talk right up front about you have a demand problem. <laughs> mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. not that there's probably an inside track, but I had, how did, just how do you manage that demand problem? Obviously go out and build more, but. Yeah, we try to, we try, we're trying to build as much as possible <laughs> we can, but I think we're, we care too much about quality to scale too aggressively because we're right. too stressed about losing that quality and losing that, you know, our reputation as, as yeah, people who yeah, do absolutely. really, really good work. So yeah, we initially started, I started, back in the day with an Excel spreadsheet of 20 people's names who just emailed us and said, hey, you know, if you do another building, let us know. Right. And um, that's now grown to a list of oh, nearly 15,000 people who've signed up through our website to say, I really want to live in an Antigua home. So we've gotten a lot smarter about how we talk to those people and engage with those people and we use that list to sort of push us and pull us and tell us where the next step for us is right. but yeah i think all we can do is is really really work hard to find more sites and find more partners and and you know build more housing and go out to ballot more and yeah. more it's, it's just i'm sorry i'm just doing the math in my head at 20 apartments it's like 700 more developments you're going to be well different. yeah we've we've <laughs> sort of we're now doing nightingale village which is six different buildings across the street we bought a street a couple of years ago um okay. so we've chopped that up into six different buildings by six architects and so there's 203 apartments across that so that's you know some buildings have 35 some have 37 yeah so we're sort of getting bigger as still we go 60 those. <laughs> still a lot yeah of correct <laughs> we still have an issue yeah yeah they're gonna be busy for a while just to, i mean what i mean you talked about quality as being kind of a a challenge here in terms of how do you scale quality and i think that's a challenge generally right yeah is that is that the main constraint or is there other kind of two other one or two constraints in terms of finding suitable sites or finding the developers yeah. who believe what you guys believe like what are the, what are the other two or three big kind of uh, factors here? the biggest uh, initially it was access to funding and in investment and finance and right. and as we've grown and gotten better at what we do and 
done more projects and proved our our worth i think we've that's eased and we have a lot of really great partners who absolutely see what we do as as important the biggest challenge we've got is access to land and access to sites and so the the harsh reality is you know we compete in the open market next door to you know the straight to market make a profit who can yeah, yeah yeah people who are willing to take a punt and go well you know i think i can make this much money off this side so i'm gonna go yeah. for it Auction. yeah and so we get outbid often so we have to get kind of creative about how we find sites and how we instigate projects so yeah that's probably the single biggest issue that we have in terms of easing that demand that we've got yeah. i'll tell you what though as soon as you get through that fifteen thousand, you're gonna have another Fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, like, it's not like all right, we're all done. Everyone, everyone we're done. Everybody cows. <laughs> everyone, everyone, oh. everyone, pause and take a breath. Yeah, never. That's super cool. And so you you talked before about having worked on this for for a while. You've been involved. You're in in the first Nightingale Nightingale yes. One. Yeah. Did you just go? Let's not worry about making coming up with more names. We'll just add numbers to them. How did talk me through the was, naming category? That was, yeah, the naming convention is it's it's an evolving beast. We still haven't quite nailed it. Well. We initially started and we had Nightingale 1, then we had Nightingale 2, then we had Nightingale 3. And then then we hit, you know, 30 and number 8 was happening before number 6 and number 5 was, and then we went, okay, this isn't a good idea because, <laughs> he, he, you know. We're confusing the crap out of ourselves, let alone Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a logical linear thing, um, sure. construction. So so we then shifted in, in Nanagal Village and there's Nanagal Sky House and Nanagal Evergreen and Nanagal Courtyard. So there's it's really down to the architects and the project team about how that naming convention happens for their community. And a lot of them have actually engaged with their residents and right. gone through a naming strategy and a naming process with, with their residents. Right. So, yeah, it is it is still evolving, but we've definitely stepped away from the numbers. I think there's, <laughs> there's some beauty in Nightingale 1 and Nightingale 2, but uh, yeah, other than that, it's, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's kind of messy after that. But just coming yeah. back to numbers, so like you're on this journey, you've been on this journey for five or six years by the sound of it? Yep. Um, yeah, more, maybe more, more, yeah, maybe a bit more. Yeah, maybe a bit more. Yeah. 21. I, I'm trying to understand the arc of the story as to how you and how the people who are at the kind of the core of this sort of mm-hmm. arrive to be working on this stuff. I and mean, some of it sounds like it's architects getting frustrated and wanting to be yeah. closer to the kind of thing they want to see in the world. Is that sort of how, how this landed for you and, and, the, and the other main people involved? Like, what's Yeah, definitely me personally. I um, I studied architecture and then I started working as a student at Breathe Architecture yeah. run by Jeremy and Tamara, who that was the birth of Nightingale in the, in the little back garage in Brunswick back right. in sort of 2011, 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. We worked on a lot of big developer-led projects and were pretty frustrated at the, the meetings we were in and the conversations that we were having and, and the lack of ability to actually have impact. Right. And so Jeremy, the founder of Nightingale, Jeremy and Tamara, just thought, all right, well, let's stop complaining and let's <laughs> raise some money and let's do one ourselves. And right. um and the, the classic line in, within our office is, how hard can it be? Um, that's, <laughs> that's Jeremy's, Jeremy's tagline. And we, um, we are seven years later. And still it's trying very to work hard. out and the things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, it sort of hurts us all when we laugh and say it because every turn we go, it is hard. This is, it's just not easy. And there's a reason that, there's a reason that things work out the way they do. So that was, that's kind of how we started. And then, I kept working as an architect for a while and then Nightingale Housing itself started as a separate company. And so I was right. the first employee of Nightingale Housing. Yeah, right. Amazing. And now we've got 
15, 16 of us bouncing around different parts of of the world. Of the world, literally? Or well, I say the world, just Victoria. Melbourne at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we've sort of... Well, that's the world office. we are living in, by the way, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're sort of half at home, half around, half in the office. Sure, sort of sure. But yeah, that, that's that's kind of where I started. And and as a, as a graduate architect coming through, I think it was really exciting to be part mm. of that. And there's very, very early stages to go, oh, wow, you know, we can have some real impact here and I'm going to run this to ground and going to see where it goes. And like any startup organization, there's, you know, in six months' time it might not exist and we all kind of knew that at the time, but we're still, you know, changing and evolving five, six, seven years later and getting stronger and getting more confident in what we do and better at what we do and, and um yeah, it's, it's still very exciting. It is still very hard, though. It's not. Uh, it's definitely not as easy as we thought. Looking in from the outside. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm actively out looking for things like this, and it only came across my desk, you know, a few months ago. Yeah. And you've been at it for seven years. Do you know? I think yeah. so much of this is how do you how do you get these things out to market and get them well known? Yeah. Obviously, you're in that place now, which is amazing. Just, I guess, as a one final question, like, what's the what's the the next major kind of you know, hill to be taken for you guys in terms of this is when we can get over this thing, then we're like in a in a different trajectory from our perspective. Oh, there's so much. There's so much. I think carbon positive buildings. I think that would be incredibly amazing. Like just lifting the design output, just, pr- yeah, of the whole thing, which is it's yeah. fine that we're here, but how do we design challenge ourselves even further from a design perspective? Are kind of the big hills. To yeah, definitely, definitely from a sustainability perspective. I think. And then from a from a financial perspective as well, we're within a market that is just scary what's going on out there in terms of housing affordability and we're mm-hmm. working so hard but we're still buying sites in that market. So any kind of nut to crack that open, that will be incredible because we will absolutely go down that rabbit hole. I think community is something we're, we're, we're doing well and we're, do, we're getting better at. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's always room to improve. So yeah, I guess I guess the answer is yeah. We don't know. We're we're trying in all different <laughs> directions, and I probably are, are. We really just need to focus on one and just do that really well. I think you're doing you're doing pretty well down in my book. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Now we'll leave it there for today. It was um, super interesting. I actually have a bunch more questions, but I, I think uh, yeah, we'll, we'll cover those. I all could go on for hours. Yeah. We'll do a check in, yeah. but. Um, I, just, cool. I think as well, like just interesting on that on that point, if you can create something that people want to get behind from a building perspective like you've done, like an architecture and a design and a, even a development perspective, at some point you're going to create a, a pathway for people who have access to capital and want to get their capital behind something as part of an overall desire for them to be doing more and adding more value with their capital, still getting a return on their capital, but yeah. having doing it more than just making money. Yeah. So I, my guess is you're already heading in the right direction to start unlocking beast mode with respect to that capital land problem. I hope sure. so. Yeah, yep. fingers crossed. Fingers <laughs> if anyone's listening has got a bunch of capital, start Talk rethinking about your allocation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Dan. Really Amazing. pleasure having you on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Vincent. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change a system for the better, please go to www.shapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. 
connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.